Are y'all doing okay? Y'all are doing pretty good? You're coming to the end of the year? Yes. Woo. Woo. And it's almost Christmas? Yes. It's going to be nice. Okay, well, let's get to it. Um, we're going to be in Romans 8. We're going to be the middle of Romans 8. Uh, starting in, in uh, chapter 8, verse 12. Um, how many of you were here last week? Come on, I can't, I can't tell them. Okay. Oh, maybe this is about, How many of you were not here last week? Ah, the unbelievers. Say, okay, you're at home with family, yeah. Okay, uh, just I'm, I'm going to recap last week in a sentence. Romans eight is just really one of the most important chapters in the Bible, uh, and that's why we've broken it down into three weeks. It's just an extremely important uh, chapter. So if you missed last week, the, the, we're coming on the heels of what we talked about last week. But if I could sum up last week in just a quick statement. Um, God has dealt with the condemned state of humanity. When I say the condemned state of humanity, I mean that humans are condemned to be slaves of sin. So they're condemned into a state where they're powerless to deal with their own sin. They're powerless to fight their own sin. And being in this, they're condemned or they're sort of consigned or they're condemned to a state of sinfulness. Not only are they condemned to a state of sinfulness, they are condemned to death, so like a judgment of death. Do you see what I mean by I'm using condemned in two different ways? You follow me for the most part? Condemned as a judgment and then condemned as, the, as a state of being. Okay, so they're condemned to always sin, and since they're always sinning, they are condemned to death. The judgment on their life is death. And so God has dealt with the condemned state of humanity um, by sending Jesus to the cross. And Jesus' work on the cross has now put a stamp over us that is not condemned. He took the death that we deserved, basically. And we talk about this in the gospel, right? We talk about that. But we, what we hit on last week is he dealt with that condemned state so that we could, by the Spirit, do what the law always intended. Love God and love others is kind of where we landed on that. There's so much in the Old Testament law, but when you talk to, when you talk to Jesus, um, when the Pharisees talk to Jesus in the Gospels, he kind of boils the law down into love God and love others. Love God, love your neighbors yourself. And then as he's saying that, he's transitioning into what's going to develop into the heart of Romans 8. He's transitioning into this idea that as the Spirit comes to do what the law always intended to do. So as Jesus came to do away with the condemned state of being that we were in, then here comes the Spirit on the heels of what Jesus has done to embody the believer. So now a human can be what a human was always meant to be. And as that human gives over to the Spirit instead of the flesh, this human goes from death to life. And the first part of Romans 8, you're seeing Paul hint at this idea that when we didn't have that condemned state over us anymore and now the Spirit dwells inside and we begin to, like he says, set our minds on the Spirit instead of on the flesh, we begin to come alive where we used to be dying. 
And what he says is, as you are coming alive spiritually, what's going on is it's, he's hinting at the fact that one day that life is going to manifest fully in eternal physical life. So he's hinting at this idea that humans are going to be brought from death to life in every way possible, spiritual and physical, as we set our minds on the spirit and not on the flesh. Okay, so let's jump in. 8, 12. I'll read it from the actual Bible. Just in case. But it'll be on the screen. And we're going to go through a ton of scripture tonight. We're going to do it super fast. Uh, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Okay, there's a ton in there that I would love to unpack about you not being um, given a spirit of fear or slavery, but a spirit of sonship. We're going to get into that a little bit at the end. The way I want to get there is this. What the heck is he talking about with heirs? What is he talking about? What does that last part mean? If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What is he talking about? What does he mean? That you're an heir. That we are heirs of God and heirs with Christ. This is a super important idea that I don't think we really grapple with very much at all. Um, And I kind of want to go about this the way, this actually came up as I was meeting with a couple people this week. And I want to go about it this way. I want to just shoot through a bunch of texts where this is coming up, and then I want to talk about what it means. And, and Stephen, if you'll just put them on the screen, and I'll read them, and we'll just run through them. Here we go. Okay, so this is Paul in, in the book of Ephesians praying for the Ephesian church. And he only prays for them twice. And he only prays for a few things for them. But this is what he says. I don't give cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And as I'm remembering you in my prayers, I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. What does he want them to know? What is the, the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him supposed to produce? Well, it's supposed to open their eyes, the eyes of their heart, to enlighten them to... Um, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So this word heir and this inheritance idea are the same thing. All right, let's keep going. And this is now in Colossians. He's praying for them in Colossians. Same thing. 
May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. What is the inheritance? So in, in now Ephesians and Colossians, he's only going to pray for, I think, three things in the book of Ephesians as a whole. They would know the hope to which they are called. They would know the inheritance in the saints. And they would know the, great the greatness of his power at work in them. And later on in 4, he's going to pray for them again. But it's going to revolve around power again, actually. Power and love. And then Colossians, he's going to pray for them. And he's going to pray for them and mention this thing about inheritance. Okay, let's keep going. This is now Galatians. Uh, the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, so this is almost the same language as Romans 8, God has sent the, the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. For Paul, this idea of having an inheritance and being an heir of God and an heir with Christ is something he prays for for the churches that he writes to. And he wants them to know this is one of the most important things they could actually know. It's what they wrap their lives around. It's what they wrap their hope around. What, what is it? Does anybody want to just like throw something out? Yeah. Oh no, here we go. Okay. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay, then let's unpack all of that because, that, ooh, that like warms my soul a little bit that you said it that way. That is just right. Uh, okay, 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 so it's this extremely important thing that the whole narrative of Scripture wraps around. It's, it's the culmination of what Jesus comes to do, and then something happens after Jesus, like he says, culminates everything in heaven and on earth. He passes it on to his people, his bride, his body. And it's, it's not the way that we normally think. We tend to think the end of the story is either we die and go to heaven or Jesus returns. And if, you're, if, you're, if you've been here for a while, you've at least let me pound that out of you a little bit. You don't just die and go to heaven, but the earth is restored and then we live, you know. So some of you still think we play harps on clouds, you know. Some of you are past that a little bit, but it's just like I don't even know what that means. Let's just keep going. Let's keep going. Okay. Go, go to the Romans 4 one. Okay, so here's where we're going to see this locking into the whole story. Uh, for the promise to Abraham, so a promise was made in Genesis 12 to Abraham, and, and the rest of the Bible unfolds from Genesis 12. The rest of the Bible unfolds from Genesis 12. Jesus is God's faithfulness to a promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12. Genesis 12, if you're not familiar, is way towards the beginning of the whole Bible. It's like 12 chapters from the beginning. It's right way close to the beginning. Okay, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through righteousness and faith. So that Abraham and his descendants would be heirs of the world. Keep going. Okay, uh, let's go to the Ephesians 3 real quick. Here, he's talking about this other thing. This mystery, he's talking about the mystery of the gospel, is that the Gentiles 
our fellow heirs. So now, not just Abraham and his descendants, the Israelites, but through Jesus, Gentiles are fellow heirs of the world, what it just said, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. One more, the, uh, it, this one's famous, but we kind of gloss over it. We don't, you, you would, you've read this probably a thousand times, but you would never kn- knew it was there. Uh, go to the, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. Go to the, 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 that one, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. We're going to get there. No, for sure. We made it look real pretty, too. In order. I can read it. Okay, I'm just going to read it. No worries, Stephen. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, this is Jesus talking, Sermon on the Mount. He's talking to the Jews. Christianity doesn't exist yet. Only Christ and the Jews are existing at this time. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And does anyone know what the next one is? Blessed are the meek, because what? They will inherit the earth. They'll inherit the earth. Is that not the weirdest thing you've ever heard? Like, have you ever woke up and thought, you know, I'm going to be meek today so that I might inherit the earth? It was a joke. It wasn't that good of a joke. (laughs) Okay, okay. But do you you feel what I'm saying? Like, we gloss over and it's like, oh, you should be meek because God likes that. No, he's saying the, the, those who are meek are going to be those who take part in the promise made to Abraham in the beginning. And it's going to be those people who follow Jesus, who take part in what he's doing. It's going to be those people who inherit the earth. What does all of that mean? The way the story plays out is exactly, is exactly like you just said. The story is not that Jesus came and died on a cross and then you believe he died on a cross and your sins are washed away and then when you die you get to go to heaven and leave this old dirty place we call the world. The story is Jesus died on a cross. He was resurrected to show you what it looks like to live in the glorified state, to show you the promise of what's to come, a resurrected physical spiritual being Jesus walked the earth with his disciples in a resurrected body and then ascended so that the Holy Spirit might come. When the Holy Spirit came, we began to walk and have the power to walk in the way that Jesus walked. When you die, yeah, you will go to heaven and you'll be at the right hand of the Father in the presence of God. You'll never be separated from that. The end of Romans 8 is going to hit on that pretty well. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing at all, not even death. Death is going to send you into the presence of God. But Jesus is going to return and even now the dead saints are crying out for the return of Jesus to come to this world and set all things right. And then once all things are set right, when all things culminate, when heaven comes to earth, 
Revelation 21, that the new Jerusalem is going to come down from heaven as a bride prepared for her husband um, without spot or bloom. It's going to come down, and then God is going to speak over, but now, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So that like, like it says in Ephesians 1, the culmination of everything in heaven and earth is going to come together. And when that happens, then... Jesus and his brothers and sisters who have the spirit, who happen to be you, his body, his bride, are going to share in the rulership of the earth in its glorified state. So I'm not like being provocative and trying to say, oh, don't believe in heaven or anything. I'm just saying when you reduce the story down to that, you get rid of the biblical hope that Paul wanted us to anchor into and the reason uh, that he wanted us to set our mind on the spirit and not on the flesh and the hope that we are supposed to have when we suffer. When you remove all of that from the story, you have a trimmed down version of the gospel that's quite powerless. So it's not meant to be provocative. It's meant to be biblical. It's meant to be biblical. So let's just keep rolling. We don't have to unpack more. Let's go uh, 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 Romans 8 to 18 uh, to 24. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing, the creation, the earth, the moon, the sun, the stars, the creation, elephants, billy goats, regular goats, the creation waits with eager longing for what? The revealing of the sons of God, the day when Jesus returns and we who have followed him have put our faith in him shed what it says in First Corinthians 4 is that we shed these bodies that we've been walking in and they give birth to a spiritual body that's still a body. It's not that our spirit leaves our body and like I said, we float on clouds and we play harps. No, no, no. This decaying body gives way into something new and different that can handle the presence of God fully, that can be in relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit fully that is not bound by the sinfulness that we carry around and fight anymore that's not bound by pain or crying or death or tears anymore the end of the story we should jesus returns we if we've died we resurrect into bodies and then shed into glorified bodies the creation's waiting for that day the creation is longing and waiting for that day the revealing of the sons of god for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, because of, but because of him who subjected it. So what it's saying there is the creation was subjected to futility. When in Genesis, why all, I used to always go back to Genesis. I started getting a hard time and insecure, and now I don't go back to Genesis as much. But the, the reason I want to continue to go back to Genesis, because that's where the story begins. God creates man in his own image, and then in his image gives him dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the billy goats of the ground, and the regular goats of the ground. Everything. He gives humans dominion. And then what do humans do with the dominion? They break the relationship that was going to produce life in that rulership. And then what began to happen is they began to consume from the earth and from each other until the earth became corrupted and corrupted and corrupted and bound to death. That's the beginning of the story. 
And that's what Jesus has come to restore. He's not taking you away from this place because it's bad. He's giving you his Holy Spirit so that you can walk by the Spirit according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh so that you can be what you were always intended to be in Genesis 1 until the day that he restores the earth fully and you can be that fully. And you won't have to fight the flesh anymore. You won't have to fight the pain and the crying and the tears and the death. And so what does it say that creation was subjected to futility, to meaninglessness? The creation is subject, you, you feel this not as much because you're younger, but as you get older, you're going to feel it more. I talked about this a couple weeks ago. Have you ever looked at pictures of your grandparents when they were young? Is it not the weirdest, most eerie thing to look at? Because for a minute, you're like, wow, they were young and youthful, and I only remember them old and wrinkly. Like, my grandparents are old and wrinkly. That's just where they are. They've always been that way. And you see this picture, and you're like, no, they're, they're young. And then you realize it's not going to be very long at all to, before you get there as well. Everything in this earth, at the molecular level, I mean, those of you who take chemistry, right, half-lives, everything is breaking down. You are getting older. The universe is expanding. The earth is getting warmer. You have family and friends that are dying. Everything ends in death in this place. It's futile. So those brief moments where it's nice and cool and beautiful and you love it, it's futile because you know that's all going to end really soon. And when you were in middle school, half of you got depressed because you realized that. For some reason, people in middle school and then maybe in ninth grade, you just realize that every, like, for some reason at that age, I realized life was meaningless. And I was like, oh, this sucks. Like, everyone's going to die. Everyone I know is going to die. So why am I, like, working so hard on all this homework? I'm going to start smoking weed. Right? And then I waited a couple years, and then I started smoking weed because you know, junior high is just a rough time to start smoking weed. But there's something that you, there, there, you remember the day that you realize that everything in this world is going like downhill. And you feel it now. Governments are falling apart. Every, I, mean, I mean, just turn on the news for a minute. Everything is corruptible and being corrupted. That's why it says the creation is longing because the creation is in that state of futility. Where even the beautiful and good things are subject to the slow decay of time and death. Your wedding day is going to be beautiful if you haven't already had it. And both of you are going to die. I'm sorry. You've just got engaged. You've just got engaged. A sad story. But you'll have like 60 years or something. It's going to be great. And the last 10 years are going to be really difficult. And the first five are going to be a little difficult. That's not in Jesus' name. It might be perfect the whole time. Everything is corrupting. And that was never the original intention. The original intention is that we would be humans in relationship with our creator 
not bound under any sort of compulsion to sin, not bound to die even. And in that state, we're supposed to have dominion. Oh, yes. Amen. Come on. That's what I'm talking about. Feeling me. Okay. Okay. Go. Let's jump into the beginning of this real quick. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the same freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen isn't hope, for who hopes for what he sees? And this is the part where I kind of want to apply this a little bit. Every, uh, nearly every time, I haven't looked at all the cases, but nearly every time. Every time that Paul goes into this statement or this explanation of the hope that is to come, the new creation, he talks about suffering. He talks about suffering. And I want to go to one place where he's really getting, he really unpacks it the most. This will be the last scripture. The Second Corinthians 4. Why does he talk about suffering when he talks? It should be the excited thing. Why does he talk about suffering? He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. He's talking about suffering. He's talking about going and doing the difficult things. He's talking about being obedient to the spirit and not to the flesh. Skip down to 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then here's the part I want to get to. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Why does he talk about suffering and new creation together all the time? Because the suffering that you experience in day-to-day life is what is preparing you to handle the weight of glory that it will be to live in a redeemed body in, a, in an earth that you own with Jesus and rule with Jesus and exercise dominion with Jesus. Do you see how weird this idea is? Do you see how crazy this idea is? 
the way that C.S. Lewis has a couple places he talks about this idea. One of them is The Great Divorce. If you're familiar with this book, it's a pretty insane book. But it's this dream this guy has, and they take this bus from what seems to be hell to the foothills of heaven. And they get to heaven, and they start realizing that the grass doesn't bend underneath their feet. The dew doesn't move when they touch the grass. And that compared to everything in heaven, they look like ghosts. They're like see-through almost. And what he begins to show you is that they are not able to handle the presence of God. They're not able to handle the new creation because they are not in a state where they are heavy enough. That word glory actually means weight in the original language. It means weight. It means heaviness. C.S. Lewis has a book also called The Weight of Glory. And he goes into sermons on similar ideas. There's a reason that when Moses is on the mountain and he asks, God, God says, well, you know, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. He says, I want to see you face to face. And God's like, no. Pretty much saying, like, you can't handle that. His, his body couldn't handle the weight of that glory. Okay? That's why he says, I'm going to hide you in a rock, and I'm going to pass by, and then you can kind of poke your head out and look at the backside of me. You can get like a quick glimpse of some of me. But you can't handle in the state that you are in the weight of glory. It would be utterly crushing to you. There's a reason that when you get into some of these weirder books like Daniel and Revelation, that even when angels get around, people fall on their face, and they just fall on their face, and sometimes they worship the angels. There's that place in Isaiah 6 where he goes in the temple like he had always done, and when he walks into the temple this time, God is there, and it says the train of his robe filled the temple. His glory was in the temple. And he immediately falls down on his face, and he immediately says, I'm an unclean man and I live among a people of unclean lips. Woe is me, is the words that he used. Woe is me. There's something about humanness now that can't even handle a little bit of God. And that's what he's saying. He's saying the wrestling, you have the spirit dwelling inside of you and that wrestling between the spirit and the flesh and you being caught in this inability to give into the Holy Spirit and giving into the flesh too much and learning how to wrestle and learning how to fight what's going on. There's a reason that Jesus didn't do everything the first time he came because he's preparing in you an eternal weight of glory. He's thickening you. He's making you heavier. He's making you more real. He is setting your mind on things that don't change and taking your mind off things that do change because we have a propensity to set our hearts and our minds and our hopes on all this stuff that is passing away. And so he shakes our life a little bit. And when he shakes our life a little bit, it lets us see, oh, okay, this stuff isn't that real. I need to set my heart and my mind and my hope on what is real. 
And so that wrestling between the spirit and the flesh is God preparing in you an eternal weight of glory. That suffering, like the deep suffering that you feel, is God preparing in you an eternal weight of glory. He's preparing you for what's going to happen for eternity. There's this, there's this weird place in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, you're having a dispute among you. Can't, don't, don't you realize that you will judge angels one day? And it's just this weird thing, like, what, one day I'm going to judge angels? What the, what the heck does it even mean? And he's saying, can't you deal with the stuff going on in your life now? Realizing that one day you will inhabit a glorified body and rule the earth alongside Jesus after all things culminate underneath him. And the way that he prepares you for that is through the warfare of this life and the suffering of this life. He shakes you. And he shakes the things around you so that you will do like it says in you will do just like it says. You will set your mind on things that are unseen because these things that you see, they're passing away. And then I want to connect this to this thing that we saw in Galatians and we saw in Romans. That the Holy Spirit is in us crying, Abba, Father. What does that mean? Why does he say that? Now, the only way I can explain this is this. Um, like two months ago now, it had been like an extremely difficult few months that were on the heels of like an extremely difficult year. Um, and it seemed like things were settling out. Um, just a lot of difficulty uh, around the church, dealing with a lot of things, a lot of divorces going on, a lot of difficulty on the elder board, just a lot of stuff going on. It was, it was, it was just heavy, and it was heavy for a long time. And it looked like we were coming out really good. And like most of you know, one of the guys on our elder board that I had grown really close with is a professor at SFA, right, and got caught with the child pornography. And it just broke the elder board wide open. And the day after we found out that news, we had a worship night. And I was in the back. And I was just worshiping, and I like lift my hands when I worship, you know, like this. And it's and in my mind when I lift my hands, I'm like I'm praising you, God. You know, there's like that sort of thing, like I'm praising you for who you are. But that night in my mind, it was like the Lord was like flashing some things at me. My son is uh, almost two now, and when he was about 18 months, he couldn't really say much, but when he would hurt himself or it would fall and hit his head or, you know, something would scare him or like the lights would go out and he would say, ghost, and he would run over to me. Um, someone, t- I, it, was, it was all the stuff around Halloween. On all the cartoons, there's ghosts on all of them. So I got a two-year-old thing, everything the lights go, there's a ghost. I mean, this is stupid. But he will run to me and all he does is do this. He'll go up, up. That's all he says. It's all he can say, up, up. And he's like, He's like, and everything in him is just like, up, up. Like, I just, I, I want to be up in your arms, and I want, to, I want you to hold me, and I want to feel safe. And he can't say any of that. He can't say any of that. All he can say is like, up. 
You know, and you pick him up and you hold him, and it's just like the most beautiful feeling ever. You know, like this kid is comforted by you. And so I was back there worshiping, and it had just been an impossible year and an impossible couple months, and then just terrible news. And I'm back there, and I lift my hands down worshiping, and then it's just like the Lord flashes that in my mind. And then in that second, it was like I, I wasn't praising God. It, all I could do was say, like, all that I could muster in me is just up. Like, like I want to be comforted by you. I want you to fix everything. I'm tired. I'm suffering. And everything in me is crying out to you like a father and just saying, like, I know you're good and I know in your arms is comfort. And there's something about suffering and the way it cuts through self-reliance and pride and all the things we think about ourselves and all the ways we feel like we can fix everything and we can be good people. And there's something about the way that suffering just cuts through that and all you can do is respond and be like, I am just a little boy that needs to be held. Like, that's all I am. I just want, I just want up. And I just wept. And I couldn't say another word to God except for up. And there's something about the way that suffering cuts everything away and runs you to the Holy Spirit and makes you cry out, Abba, Abba, like, you're my father, and you can fix everything, and you are there. And there's something about the way that suffering cuts through all of that and brings you to a place where you actually are motivated to stop clinging to these things that are seen and cling to things that are unseen because they don't pass away. And it prepares us to be what we were always meant to be and what we will be fully. And that's why in Ephesians and Colossians, Paul's saying, I want you to know the hope to which you're called. What, are the, what is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? There's the power at work in you now. And he wants you to set your mind on those things. And so if you're praying for things and praying for things and praying for things and you feel like they're good things and the Lord is just not answering in the way that you think he should or you're in the middle of a really, really, really crappy place and life is difficult or if you're fighting something and you're wondering like why do I keep have to, why do I have to keep fighting this? It's because he's, he's doing something. He's preparing a weight of glory that are incomparable to momentary light afflictions. That's why James says to embrace it. To embrace it, even though it's difficult. 